name's Alice, I'm part of the pastoral staff here. Um, and this evening we are starting a new mini-series. It's a two-parter. You've got me this week and next week. Oh, there you go, thank you. Um, I, I can't work out if that was louder than this morning or not. <laughs> I feel vaguely encouraged, thank you. Um, and um, well, I haven't told you what it is yet, because actually what we're talking about for the next couple of weeks is um, that the topic, or the, the name for the series is Finding Hope Through Suffering. And that's what we're going to be talking about. I'm aware it's very hot <laughs> and very warm up here. Um, but I hope you can stay with me this evening and kind of engage with all that we want to talk about. I realise it doesn't sound like the most joyful topic out there. Um, and apologies if you're new, if you're visiting. We normally are a lovely, joyful bunch. Um, and I'm sure we still will be this evening. Um, but we have felt, there's a few things have happened. We felt that it's a really important topic that we talk about. And I thought I'd kind of tell you a bit of the background to how it is we've got to this point and talking about this. Um, the last time I preached was a while back. I preached on, um, uh, on the moment where the people of Israel um, move into the promised land God has given them in the book of Joshua, looking at the battle with Jericho. And um, we were looking, um, in the, we were doing a whole series on the book of Joshua. And we were looking at the, um, the idea that this is a Joshua chapter for us as a church. Um, many of you may know, hopefully you all know, I don't know, um, is that from September we are becoming a multi-site church. So we are starting, uh, launching a site of Cardiff Vineyard in the north. So we've got Cardiff North and we're going to have here Cardiff Central. And we were using that sermon series in Joshua to look at courage and just kind of vision for where we think the Lord is calling us in this next chapter as a church. Just to say, if that's new information for you, we've got an amazing booklet downstairs. So pick up one of those called Becoming a Multi-Side Church, Cardiff Vineyard. And you can pick up one of those and, yeah, hopefully it'll answer all the questions you may or may not have. Um, so, yeah, so have a look at that. And um, it, as part of my talk, I was looking at the Battle of Jericho, the moment when the, the people of Israel, um, God's chosen people, do the first kind of decisive step into the promised land. And um, I was talking about our vision to see this city restored to see people come to know Jesus um, and to see us kind of win the city for Jesus was kind of the battle cry of my talk. And afterwards, one of our leaders came up to me, a friend of mine, she came up to me and she said, you know, she had felt really prompted as I'd been speaking. And um, God had given her real heart for people in this church family for whom this point, this moment, didn't feel like a Joshua chapter in their own lives. Uh, maybe they're going through a time of real difficulty, uh, suffering, and instead of feeling kind of fighting fit and ready for battle, actually there are people among us um, who uh, were going through difficult seasons in their own lives, um, going through times of pain and suffering, and that it was really important that as we went in this next, kind of step forward in this next chapter, that they didn't feel left behind or forgotten. And of course that is so important. It is really important. And, and we all go through seasons of our lives. We all go through different seasons in our lives. And we'll all go through times of difficulty, pain, and suffering. I think it's really, really important as Christians, we never portray the Christian faith as this like kind of um, spiritual high for Jesus all the time. You know, kind of um, adrenaline Christianity. That is like, woohoo, let's go, let's get them, kind of Christianity. When actually the reality is, is that the Christian life, like any other life, has seasons of difficulty, time, uh, pain, um, and grief. We're not always going to feel like we are fighting fit and ready to go. Um, we will, it won't always feel like we have anything left to offer other people. And that's totally okay. It's worth saying, you know, the nation of Israel, as they did advance into the promised land, they took everyone with them. 
They took everyone with them as a nation, and they cared for those in their community that were going through difficult times, the vulnerable in their community. And I went away with that conversation um, with my friend, um, just starting to feel the prompting of the Lord to come and talk about this topic over the next uh, couple of weeks. And it's a topic that I've kind of, you know, when you do sermons, you kind of always have a, I often have a talk that I'm writing in my head. And it's a topic that I have kind of been thinking about and kind of almost writing a sermon on for the last couple of years. But also just, you know, it's quite a hard topic to talk about because to talk about it, you have to be fair, fair, you know, you have to be ready to be quite vulnerable. So I feel like the Lord has been preparing me to come and talk about this. And we met as a staff team where we, um, uh, some of us on the pastoral staff meet and we plan and prepare for, uh, for our preaching series. And um, as we met, we had these couple of weeks free. And before I said anything, um, the question got put out there, what are we going to talk about over these two weeks? And James said, I just feel like the Lord's saying we need to talk about suffering. I was like, oh, well, there we go. Um, so here we are, and this is what we're going to be talking about. For some of you this evening, you are in the valley right now. As soon as I've started talking, you're like, oh, this is me. I'm in a difficult place in my life right now. Um, maybe uh, you are in a time of suffering and grief. Maybe you've experienced a, a loss in your life. You know, over the years, um, in my pastoral role, I've come to realize that most suffering actually involves some kind of loss, whether it's loss of a loved one, um, maybe it's the loss of a relationship in your life, a breakdown in a relationship. Um, maybe it's the loss of a dream that you've had for your life that just hasn't come true. Uh, maybe it's a dream to have children. Maybe it's a dream for a career that's just not happened. Maybe it's the loss of joy in your life, the loss of peace in your life. Maybe this evening you are struggling with depression and anxiety, a deep depression maybe in your soul that, is lo- that has robbed you of all joy. You know, Winston Churchill used to refer to it as the black dog in his life, this deep depression. And every now and again, it would come and sit on him. And I know that's been the case in my own life, in seasons in my own life. Maybe it's a loss of joy. Maybe this evening you're sitting here and you've had some difficult test results. Maybe you're looking at a loss of health in your life. And that's a scary place to be sitting in this evening. I'm really going to try my best over the next couple of weeks to tread really carefully through this topic. Um, From the outset, I want to be honest and say, you know, my experience of suffering won't be yours. I can't, you know, it's hard to always know, is this, is this just how I felt or is this like a kind of a universal reaction? I'm going to really try and tread carefully through some of that over the next couple of weeks. I by no means have the monopoly on this topic, thankfully. <laughs> I'm also aware that there'll be some people here who your, um, your, ex- your experience, your life has, you've experienced levels of suffering that most of us won't um, face in this lifetime. Maybe you've experienced some really, really difficult things in your life. And um, my hope is wherever you're at with this, that over the next couple of weeks, um, that you are provided with some hope and some guidance to walk through this period you're in, the valley that you're in at the moment with Jesus. That is my hope. That's probably some of us. For the rest of us, the majority of us, I I imagine, we're actually probably might be in a great place in life. And that's great. That really, really is. We don't want to kind of make suffering this thing that we're like, oh, isn't suffering amazing? Um, Nor do we also want to kind of wallow in self-pity over the next couple of weeks. But I do think it's worth saying from the outset that wherever you're at, however old you are, at some point in your life, you will face a time of difficulty, grief, and suffering. That is inevitable. That is a universal truth of just being human. All of us go through difficult seasons in our lives. And for, for kind of the rest of us here that are in a, you know, maybe not in a difficult place right now, the picture I've had as I've prepared this um, is from the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Many of you might know the story. And towards the end of the story, Joseph finds himself in a position of authority in Egypt with Pharaoh. He's had this um, uh, prophetic word from the Lord that Egypt and the surrounding area are going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And Joseph is put in charge of organizing like a kind of a government-sponsored program of collecting um, stuff from the harvest in the times of plenty so that in the time of famine, there's stuff in the barns ready to go. 
And um, that was the picture I had. So if you're here this evening and you're like, I'm in a great place in my life right now, um, may I invite you in the next couple of weeks to store up in the barns some of this stuff and come back to it when you're in a difficult place. You've got to think this stuff through before you hit a difficult time. Think this stuff through, store it up in the barns and have it there. Be ready for when you find yourself in the valley. Now the truth is, unlike the story of Joseph, where Joseph has this prophetic word that a difficult time was coming and he prepared for it, actually, for most of us, suffering comes completely unexpected with no kind of announcement. A lot of the time, we have no idea what is coming our way, do we? Suffering is a great interrupter of life. It comes out of nowhere often and it interrupts your life when you're least expecting it. It disrupts our neatly laid plans. It disrupts our feelings of being in control of our life. It disrupts our ideas, our dreams on how life could be and should be. It's a great disruptor, interrupter of life. And that has been certainly the case for me in my life. When I was 20, in between my second and third year of university, I was at home in the summer, and I got called into the kitchen by my mum and my stepdad, along with the rest of my siblings, um, to be sat down and to be told in that moment that my mum had been feeling unwell, she had not been well for some time, I, did, I hadn't known about it, and um, she had had some test results, and um, they'd come back with a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. And I remember the shock I felt in that moment. It wasn't a conversation I'd ever imagined having. Um, it wasn't a reality I ever, I ever thought I'd find myself in. And that same summer, I'd also lost a close friend to cancer. So in just a kind of a few short weeks, I felt my life kind of imploding. And then I went back to university to finish my degree, do my third year of my degree, and I was just feeling, obviously I was feeling worried about my mum, the treatment she was going to have to have, and I just felt really isolated as well from my friends, most of whom were in that kind of third year stage of finishing my degree, and what am I going to do after I graduate? And that just wasn't the place that I was in in my life. I was in a totally, I felt something much older than a lot of my friends, and in a totally different headspace. Um, the next two years my mum followed, uh, two years of treatment with some positive results at first and then negative results, lots of complications with her health. Um, a year later, after that news, um, I, I graduated. My mum was too ill to come to my graduation. Um, and then a year after that, I was away on a mission trip in the middle of nowhere, overseas, and suddenly a phone call, a mobile phone handed to me and my sister's voice, a distant voice at the end of a phone call saying that mum had passed away. I had to fly back, get on a flight out of there and fly back home. It was horrendous. It was just a horrendous, horrendous time in my life. And then I had another phone call a few years later this time, this time from my stepdad. He was um, the man who had brought me up. All intents and purposes was my dad. And um, this time it was him with a diagnosis, a diagnosis of cancer, different cancer, mesothelioma, which um, is a cancer caused from exposure to asbestos. He worked as a building surveyor. Um, which is ironic because he smoked cigars his entire life. But anyway, kind of a dark, uh, dark humour there. But, um, and um, 18 months later, he passed away as well. Another loss in my life. And I remember thinking, surely this can't happen twice. Surely it's someone else's turn to lose a parent. But of course, we know that's not how things work. Life isn't always fair like that. Grief and suffering interrupts your life. It makes your life stop. It kind of presses a massive pause on your life. It changes who you are as a person, and it turns your world upside down. It is deeply, deeply disorientating. You can't think straight. You can't make simple decisions. You can't make any plans for the future. You can't tell people what it is you want or you need in those moments. People love to text, let me know how I can help. You can't reply, I don't know how to help you help me. I don't know what I need right now. You live in a day by day, wondering when will it get easier? When is it gonna get easier? 
And of course, in times like this, we also start to question, don't we? We start so natural to question. You ask questions of God you never thought you'd ask in those moments. You question his goodness, you question his sovereignty. And the truth is that in that moment, there are no easy answers to those questions. When you're in the valley, there are no easy answers to questions like that. To why is it that suffering happens? Why is it? Why did this individual thing happen to me? Why, 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 why? All those questions. I found in time it's possible to kind of engage with the theological discussion around it, but not whilst you're in the valley, not whilst it's so deeply personal, because theological arguments are always objective. They're always out there kind of for cold, hard discussion, black and white discussion. And actually, when something is so subjective to you, when it's actually your life, your person you've lost, the grief you're going through, it's so subjective and you just can't engage with it. Any argument offered just feels cold, cruel, and falls well short of offering any real comfort. That's what we see in the book of Job in the Old Testament. The book of Job, if you know it, um, is it's in the Old Testament, and it's a book basically about suffering. It's not a light read. <laughs> if you're looking for any summer reading whilst you're on your holidays, I wouldn't recommend the book of Job. I'd recommend it in a different way at another time, maybe. Um, it starts with lots of awful things happening to the, the character of Job, the man of Job. It starts with the death of his children, the loss of his wealth, and then um, he uh, has a debilitating illness. And his friends come alongside him, they rally round, and they come and try and offer some explanation as to why it is he is suffering like this. And the whole, the rest of the book of Job, it's a long one, it's about 40-something chapters. Um, the, the rest of the kind of the whole middle section of the book of Job is Job having a speech and then his friends having a speech, kind of debating why it is that this is happening to him. And in it, we see Job pouring out his heart. He is angry with God. He is lamenting his suffering. He is questioning the goodness of God, the power of God as well at the same time. He is, he is demanding God show up. And Job's friends are worried because they're like, Job, you really are putting yourself in danger. God is going to be angry with you. And then at the end of the book, um, God shows up. The presence of God is there. And you know what? God is not angry in the slightest. The people he's angry with are Job's friends. He's angry with these kind of black and white theological arguments that offered no comfort, no pastoral support to Job whatsoever, that were cold and were cruel and went no way in helping Job in his suffering. He is cross with them. And um, Job, on the other hand, he comes alongside and he speaks to Job tenderly and lovingly. God can get on board with the cries of Job's heart because they are a genuine heart pouring themselves, Job is genuinely pouring himself out to God in that moment. And God doesn't mind our honesty in those moments. He doesn't mind, he loves the fact that Job was walking alongside him in his suffering and just being real with where he was. Now, I'm not saying it's not healthy to look at the questions surrounding suffering, but I'm just not going to major in on these in the next couple of weeks. And for those of you kind of wanting to engage with the kind of more like philosophical, theological, kind of that, the bigger picture, as it were, the kind of objective kind of arguments around why it is we suffer, um, how you can kind of equate that, how you can live in peace as a Christian with those kind of stuff, um, it's worth saying you definitely can. Um, but I would point you to the book of uh, a book written by Tim Keller, an American pastor who's written a really helpful book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And the first section of that book looks directly at a lot of those arguments. And I've gone over, it's really helped me preparing for these talks. I think it's worth saying, though, even, whilst, even when we do engage with some of those theological debates, there is an element to, to which the reasons around suffering and what it is to suffer and how it is that we suffer like this um, will remain a mystery. I think it will remain a mystery. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we only see in part. And I think sometimes we have to conclude, you know what, God, I don't see everything. You are God. I can't understand this always. It will remain a mystery. And that is the truth. That is what happens with Job as well. 
you realise when you get to the end of the book of Job that, do you know what, God never answers any of his questions. How rude. <laughs> never answers any of his questions. God never explains. We as readers get to see this kind of dialogue between God and Satan and this kind of like behind the scenes spiritual kind of like picture. But Job never sees any of that. God doesn't even mention it to him. But do you know what? In that moment, Job finds his peace. Because actually in the presence of God, that is where he finds his deep assurance. Not in the questions being answered, not in knowing what's going on behind the scenes, but in the presence of God. God's presence is reassurance enough for him in that moment. It's all the assurance he needs. And my prayer for you this evening, if you are in that time in your life of kind of grief and suffering, that you would know this evening the deep reassurance of Jesus in your life. That's what you would know. Questions you have, I'm not going to say I'm going to answer them all but that you would know this evening the deep reassurance of Jesus in your life, even in the midst of suffering and pain. My prayer is that you would know what it is to walk with Jesus through difficult times, that you won't just kind of walk away, that you will journey through the valley with Jesus. And I want to look for the remainder of our time at um, a passage in the book of 1 Peter that has really helped me, enabled me to do that, to stay close to Jesus even when going through difficult times. I realised as I kind of came back to it, you know, it's the first passage I ever preached on, or one of, when I was 18. <laughs> Um, But I have slightly changed what I said from then. (laughs) Um, So it's from the book of 1 Peter, um, written by Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, to Christians who are facing intense, intense persecution for their faith, who are in the midst of the kind of the the deepest levels of suffering. And he is writing to them to encourage them um, to stay walking with Jesus, even in the midst of the pain and suffering that they're facing. So we're going to have a look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3, and I'm going to read down to verse 7. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Are amazing words. What is Peter's starting point? In coming to these persecuted Christians, these Christians going through a difficult time, what is his starting point? In verse 3, In God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the the dead. Peter starts with Jesus in that moment. That is the first answer he gives them. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, his death and his resurrection on the cross. That is where we have to start as well. To kind of begin to journey through difficult times with Jesus, we begin with that image, the image that is so central to the Christian faith of Jesus on a cross. That is the central image of the Christian faith. Jesus on a cross. That is where Peter begins, and that's where we've also got to begin, with a crucified Jesus. We cannot underestimate the agony of Jesus on the cross, the suffering that he went through on the cross, the physical torture of being beaten, cruelly beaten, and then crucified, the torture of being denied and abandoned by all of his friends, the torture of carrying all the sins and brokenness of the world on his shoulders, the torture of being part of a spiritual battle going on behind him. And I suppose most significantly, the torture of being cut off for those moments from his Father in heaven, from the internal perfect love of his Father in heaven. You know, Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The early 19th century Scottish preacher, a guy called Robert Murray McCheney, said this, the ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. The ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. It starts with Jesus on a cross. That's where it starts. You see, we do not have a God who is unable to relate to suffering. We have a God that suffered for us. You know, if you talk to any organization that supports people going through difficult times, going through stages of grief or suffering, often a phrase that gets used is this, the, the importance of finding fellow travelers. You know, people that have been through what you've been through in life, who are out the other side and can come back and offer support and guidance. People who can say those amazing words in life, I know how you feel. I know how you feel. I've been through this. I know how you feel. And in that sense, with the cross in mind, God is our ultimate fellow traveler. He knows how you feel. He knows how you feel. He gets what it is to walk through the valley. He gets what it is to suffer. The cross is the lens by which we understand suffering. The past reality of the cross gives us comfort for our suffering, for our current reality. The past reality of the cross gives us comfort in our current reality. You know, we have a God that understands what it is to suffer because he himself suffered. And you know, even kind of better than that or on top of that, um, God promises to be with us when we suffer. So not only does he understand, he promises to walk through us through the valley when we do suffer. That is the beauty of our faith. And that is the great promise of scripture. Um, it's one of the great promises that runs through the Bible. Paul spoke a few weeks ago on um, how, um, how God speaks through the Bible, through his word to us. And you know, if right now you are in a difficult season in your life, if you feel like you're in kind of walking through the valley, as it were, then I cannot recommend getting into scripture enough. Scripture is your friend if you're going through a difficult time. You know, you can't kind of move for verses in there reassuring that God will walk, through, walk with you through difficult times. They are packed through this reassurance of the presence of God with you. You know, read through the Psalms, for example. Psalm 94, 18 to 19. When I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. What about Isaiah, the book of Isaiah 43? But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel... Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You might have noticed in that one Peter passage um, we read a minute ago, in verse 7, that Peter refers to suffering as a fire. He uses a metaphor that suffering is like a furnace that can refi refine our faith. Um, that whilst it's painful, um, it can strengthen our faith. And we're going to kind of look at that concept a bit more next week. So kind of pause that thought and come back next week for more on that. Um, but this image of suffering as a furnace is one that we see throughout Scripture. And I find it a really helpful image because that is what it feels like, isn't it? That you're in a furnace and someone is turning the heat up and you don't know if you're going to get out. So it's used throughout Scripture. In the book of um, Daniel in the Old Testament... We see an amazing story in there, in the, early on in the book of Daniel, of three men who are going to be thrown into an actual furnace. Um, they are in Babylon, and the king of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, has demanded that they worship um, him. And they are incensed by this. They're like, no, we are only going to worship our God in heaven. And um, so, you know, he's, he kind of puts them to death. And they go into the furnace saying, do you know what? Whether God saves us or whether he doesn't, whether he saves us from this suffering or whether he doesn't, he is, he is um, worthy to be worshipped. We will not worship you. So they get thrown into the furnace. And we're going to look at the story 
Um, Daniel 3, 23 to 25. We're going to kind of pick it up halfway through. So verse uh, 23. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the furnace? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. These, men were thrown, these three men were thrown into the furnace, but in that moment, they were not alone. A fourth person was in there with them, who Nebuchadnezzar describes looking like the son of the gods. It was the son of God. Jesus was there in the furnace with them. In their suffering, they were not alone. Jesus was with them um, in the furnace. And the story ends, these three men get brought out. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is astonished, gets, brings them out. They are alive, which is ridiculously amazing. And um, in that moment, um, Nebuchadnezzar repents. They come out of the, fur- the furnace unharmed. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. So if you're in the fire of suffering right now, if that is where you are right now, then know this promise. God will be with you in the furnace. That is the great promise of scripture. God will be with you in the furnace. And in my experience, there's times when you're in the furnace and you are well aware that God is with you. And you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And then there's times where you're like, where are you, Jesus? You know, scripture says you're with me. Where are you? I don't feel you right now. Um, But the promise is there. He will be with you. And that has been my experience. And when I've looked back on times of suffering in my life, I have seen, oh God, you were with me in that furnace. You were with me in that moment. That's been my experience. Many of you would know that um, when I got pregnant for the second time, um, that I had the amazing news that I was having twins. It was kind of extraordinary because I've got a twin sister and she already had twins. She's got twin boys, um, which causes confusion because she comes here as well. So (laughs) don't worry if you ever get us confused. It's like a rite of passage of Cardiff Vineyard, not knowing which twin you are talking to. Um, People come up and say, I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, don't be. Happens literally at least five times a week. but anyway, Matt and I, my husband and I had this news that we were having twins, you know, initially kind of rather daunted, but then we were really, really excited, really excited to have this news. And I started doing what I do in life. I started planning <laughs> for twins coming, went on Gumtree, you know, started looking at what we'd need, all the equipment to survive having twins, um, and started making lots of plans for their arrival. And then Matt and I went and had our four-month scan at the hospital. And I remember in that moment, the look on the radiographer's face that moment of realizing that something wasn't right, the moment where she couldn't find a second heartbeat, that moment of panic that I felt, and as I was told that one of our twins had passed away, that we only had one child remaining. We were told that we had a little boy remaining who was healthy, but that the other twin hadn't survived and had passed away. It was a devastating time. Like once more, you know, as, as, as I said, you know, suffering is just this interrupter in our lives. It comes out of nowhere. Matt, found ourse- Matt and I found ourselves plunged into a time of grief and suffering. Our lives, our plans were interrupted. Everything was on pause. You know, we found ourselves grieving the loss of an unborn child. I know some of you here this evening, that would have been your experience. You'll know how deeply, deeply painful it is. I was terrified I was going to lose this other baby that I was carrying even though I had been reassured that that wasn't um, likely. But I was terrified about it. And Matt and I, we kind of rather stumbled home from the hospital that day. It's a bit of a blur, to be honest. I went to bed, and I woke up in the early hours of the morning, just kind of still in shock, kind of processing it, just crying out to Jesus and saying, Jesus, where are you in this furnace? How has this happened? Where are you? Are you with me in this moment? Are you with me? And I was lying there trying to process it. And in that moment, I felt Jesus kind of prompt me. I felt him ask me to name the little boy I was still carrying, to name the surviving twin. 
so I kind of picked up my phone and I was looking, you know, anyone here that's named a baby will know you kind of go on your phone, start looking at websites of like kind of baby naming websites. And as I was looking on there, I saw a name kind of popped that stood out to me. And it wasn't a name that Matt and I, we, you know, we already had a little boy, so it wasn't a name we'd even kind of considered in all the name kind of thinking we'd done in the past. It was a completely kind of different name. And I looked at it and was thinking, oh, that's interesting. And then Matt was next to me, he woke up and he looked over to see what I was doing and he looked at my phone and I explained kind of, you know, what I was doing. And he said, that's amazing. And I was like, why is that amazing, darling? And he said, you know, as we drove home from the hospital yesterday, I felt God say that we should name our child, give our child that name. I felt God give us that name for our child. And that name was Barnaby. And we looked up its meaning then and there in bed in the early hours of the morning. And we're amazed to find it meant son of encouragement, son of encouragement. And we felt in the moment, in that moment, God's encouragement that he was right there with us in the furnace that my cries of where are you, God, had been answered. He was there with us uh, in the furnace and that we felt that encouragement that he was going to walk through us, whatever happened, through the remainder of that pregnancy. Now, five months later, I was two weeks overdue. Some of you will remember I was literally massive. <laughs> um, I don't do pregnancy with a huge amount of grace and poise. I literally was like a big beach ball. I was as grumpy as I've ever been. It was as hot as this and I was huge. I remember I knew I was big because my feet didn't fit into Crocs. That's how fat my feet were. <laughs> um, and um, I was so overdue, and I was due to be induced the next day. And I was in the evening, and I was saying to Matt, I better repack that hospital bag that's been packed for months, and I've kind of taken bits out, and I was like, oh, no, I better repack it. And then my waters broke. So, all right, clearly I'm in labor. So we went off to the, uh, the hospital, and as happens, Barnaby was born, and he was born the next day. And it was only after he was born that someone pointed out the significance of the day that I'd gone into labor because they thought, thought that's why we'd given him the name Barnaby. I'd gone into labor on St. Barnabas Day. God had given me the name for my child in that moment. And four months later, my little Barnaby was born on St. Barnabas Day. God gave us that name knowing that one day we'd have our own son of encouragement to cuddle. And he was with us in that furnace. Now, I kind of tell that story with some hesitancy because I know that this evening there may well be here people who have baby stories of their own that have not ended well. You know, failed IVF, miscarriages, longed-for children that have never come. So I'm not standing here saying it will always end well. I couldn't possibly do that. We know that's not the reality. But I can promise you this. He will always be with you in the furnace. Whether you see him or not, he will always, always be with you in the furnace. One, you might see this now in this world, or you might see it when we get to heaven. You will look back and you will see that he was with you in that furnace, that you were never alone, not even for a second. So the past reality of the cross gives us comfort for this reality, but it also gives us hope for our future reality. The cross gives us hope for our future reality. That's kind of what the, the, the passage in 1 Peter that we read is primarily concerned with. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the future reality that awaits all of us as Christians in heaven. Verse 3, back in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, talks about the living hope we have because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And then it continues into verse 4, talking about this living hope in an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now, the reality is in our current reality, in this world that we live in, everything will perish, spoil, or fade. That's what we see around us, isn't it? Everything is perishing, spoiling, or fading. That is the reality. But Jesus is keeping an inheritance for us in heaven that is perfect, unspoiled, and eternal. A place where there will be, to quote Revelation 21, verse 4, where there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
That is our living hope. That is what, what awaits us. That is the great majestic promise of the Christian faith. This living hope that through Jesus' sufferings on the cross, one day our suffering will be undone and made right. That through Jesus' sufferings on the cross, one day our suffering will be undone and made right. That is the great promise of the Christian faith. If you don't know that, Paul talked earlier about someone here that maybe wants to recommit or give your life to Jesus for the first time. That is the great promise of the Christian faith. Um, And for us as Christians, I think often we're in danger of having kind of a poorly developed theology of heaven. We don't think about heaven that much. We think a lot about the reality that we're in as Christians. We don't often think about the the fact that this is not the only life that we have. (laughs) This is just a kind of a mere kind of shadow of the life that awaits us in heaven. And if we don't think about heaven, if we don't live, um, if we live as if this is all there is, then we miss out on that living hope that's promised to us. And for Peter in this passage, that that past reality of the cross and the future reality of heaven, they are the only ways in which these Christians that he's writing to, they are the only ways, that is the only way that these Christians are going to survive the suffering that they're in. You know, for Peter to, to, to live without thinking about that living hope awaiting for us in heaven was unthinkable. He was like, you don't forget it. Without that living hope, for those Christians that Peter was writing to and for us, the suffering they were facing was hopeless. The suffering they were facing was hopeless without that living hope awaiting for them in heaven. Facing suffering without hope is unbearable. It is unbearable. Anyone can tell you that. You know, countless psychological experiments have shown that when people give up on hope, that is when they give up. You know, that is when they give up in the furnace. Um, That's when they stop trying to survive the furnace, when they give up on hope in their life. And as Christians, we have to see that there is more to life than this, that there is a future hope that awaits us. And that however hard this life may be, whatever trials and suffering and grief comes your way, however hard it is, however dark the valley is you walk along, however hot the furnace is, that that will be just a mere shadow when you get to heaven. When we get to the place where we get to um, joyfully worship Jesus, where we get to be with the person that created us. Nothing will compare to the eternal joy that awaits us. Do you know, and I, I firmly believe that one day God will make all things right that every injustice done, every injustice that's been done to you, every injustice that you see in the world and you think that is not right, that bothers God even more than it bothers us. And one day he will put every injustice right. That is the future hope that awaits us, that one day he will come and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Every tear, nothing gets lost. How much do you think about heaven? Do you live as if heaven was an actual reality that you will be in one day? A living hope that awaits us one day? Was it just kind of a nice idea that we think about every now and again? Because if you, if you don't engage with that, if you don't kind of live with that in mind, then you're kind of losing out on a massive kind of, um, kind of a piece of equipment, as it were, to help you survive difficult times in your life. You're missing out. I said for Peter, it was unthinkable that Christians could live without that future hope, without knowing and living in the reality of that future hope that awaited them in heaven. It's from that perspective that we can view our current sufferings and still have hope and still have joy. You know, in 1 Peter, it talks about rejoice. And you think, how can you rejoice when you're suffering? That is how. Because if you're aware of the eternal joy that awaits you, of your Jesus, your King, awaiting you, then you can have joy when you're suffering. It's different to happiness. It's not the same as being happy. But you can have that deep joy of knowing that ultimately, at the end of the day, everything will turn out okay. That God has it. That God has you. We can enjoy anything that comes our way in life. 
And this hope for our future reality brings comfort into our current reality. So not only does the kind of the past reality of the cross bring comfort to our current reality, but the future reality that awaits us should bring comfort into our current reality. You know, the cross and the future hope of heaven are like the bookends which should surround our life and all that faces us in our life. They're a source of great comfort. They've been a source of great comfort to me in my life. My invitation to you this evening would be to dwell in that. Think about that, the mystery of the cross and the mystery of the great joy that awaits us in heaven. Should we stand? I'd love just to...